Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Talking Indonesia podcast. My name is Ken Stiawan from Melbourne University's Asia Institute and today the podcast will focus on the Indonesian diaspora and in particular the experiences of female migrants. Increasingly it's Indonesian women who migrate, whether as marriage migrants or as professional or skilled migrants. How do the women maintain links with Indonesia in their new country and what role does culture play in this process? Here to talk about these topics and more is Dr. Monica Vinanita, who is a research fellow at the University of Victoria in Canada. She is the author of Dancing the Feminine, a book on Indonesian migrant women in Australia and their participation in dance performances. Monica, welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for having me. Monica, it's been estimated that the Indonesian diaspora ranges from 6 to 8 million people, of whom 4.5 million are Indonesian citizens. Now, my first question to you would be, what is actually a diaspora? What do we mean by it? The historical kind of uh, definition of diaspora is to disperse. So diaspora is from the Greek word to disperse. So um, there, there used to be uh, dispersal of mainly uh, people who left due to forced migration. So, for example, if you think about the Jewish diaspora or the Armenian diaspora, that's historically where um, the word diaspora comes from. So it's about um, a collective or a community uh, who share a similar kind of history, perhaps a sense of um, forced migration or alienation, um, and they want some sort of restoration of homeland. So, but that that sort of um, definitions um, change. So it's not just about those who suffer trauma and marginalization due to forced migration, but it's also migrants in general. Monica, so you're talking about uh, the creation of a new community, basically, when people move to another country. Now, you've mainly done research on the Indonesian community in Australia. Could you say something about some of the reasons why Indonesians migrate? Well, for example, uh, in, in, in Australia, there were the uh, Minangkabaus, the Minangkabaus who, who came um, from Sumatra and migrated here in the 1970s, you know, as part of their their rantau or their their migration for work and prosperity. So they they come uh, they came here um, in the 70s when uh, migration was a little bit more open to Australia. Um, and then there were uh, also Indonesian scholars from the Australian government-sponsored Colombo Education Plan in the 1950s. So Indonesian students that are sponsored by the Australian government and who then stayed on or have a job as an Indonesian uh, teachers or lecturers, or, and they may marry Australians and they stayed on. Um, there are Indonesian international students who remained as skilled migrants and become permanent residents or marriage migrants, so Indonesian men and women who married um, Australians. Now, Monica, as you've just explained, there are many different reasons why people migrate. Um, you just mentioned marriage migration. Could you say something more about that, and in particular, um, women who migrate? With, with the migration pattern of women, in particular to Australia, um, you know, in just in the last sort of uh, 2013, 2014 um, uh, statistics 
51.7% of all permanent migration visas uh, granted to Indonesians were in the migration stream, and 78% of that were partner of Australian, citizens, uh, Australian residents. And uh, more Indonesian women out of those 78% uh, than Indonesian men are in the intermarriage situation. So about 56% um, uh, of all Indonesian migrants to Australia are women. So the migration used to be of men, but now increasingly the migration um, is women um, and mainly in the, the in the family stream. So as marriage migrants or spouses of, uh, or uh, potential spouses of, of Australian men and Australian residents. So there's quite a large number of female marriage migrants. Now, with, with that being such a huge group, I imagine that there would be uh, certain societal perceptions of these women. So there's these sort of um, extreme sort of images. So on one hand, you have in Indonesia's popular media images of actresses, you know, Indonesian actresses um, who are wealthy and beautiful and married to Western men who are expats and so forth and having this really rich kind of almost Hollywood lifestyle. So there's that extreme positive image um, in the media on, oh, these, these, are, these are the women that are, that are, you know, lobbying, these are the marriage migrants. But on the other spectrum, negative sort of um, stereotype of, of the women are um, them as what is called bar girls. So this is the term that I encountered during my uh, anthropological, anthropological research amongst Indonesian migrant women, um, marriage migrants, um, is that they are very aware of being depicted negatively as a bar girl, that they have met their uh, mainly Anglo-Australian spouse in, um, you know, certain kind of um, dubious circumstances, uh, particularly in Perth or Western Australia, where the mining industry is one of the largest industry. There's this sort of um, stereotype or fear of stereotype that the women would have met, you know, the men who were um, working in a mining company, perhaps in Indonesia, in, in areas such as Kalimantan, and they would have met the women when they were socializing in a bar kind of situation. So the women were were of stereotypes as bar girls, which is very close to sort of, um, you know, negative stereotypes about um, the women's loose morales as such. And there's the whole kind of stereotype of, of Westerners anyway, both men and women, as being of loose morales. So if you're married to a Westerner, there's this there's this sort of fear that um, you are associated with being a woman with loose morales, perhaps having a bar girl sort of past or, you know, or uh, Juanita Nakal or, you know, that kind of um, naughty women or, you know, having that kind of interaction with Western men in, in certain dubious kind of circumstances. How would you say that Indonesian female migrants respond to that stereotype? Um, how do they, for instance, challenge or um, de or attempt to deconstruct um, that imagery? The the women that I um, uh, did research with, particularly in Western Australia, uh, they are the ones who formed um, groups um, in uh, cultural activity groups. So they then um, did uh, Indonesian traditional dances as not only as a, as a hobby 
to socialize with one another, but to perform it in Australian multicultural festivals or Indonesian festivals. What kind of dances do these women perform? Are they traditional dances? The majority are amateurs, so they wouldn't have necessarily the skill to dance classical dances, which probably would be a preferred sort of representation of Indonesia in these events, but they would do their own version of Indonesian dances, you know, a mix, perhaps a mix with belly dancing, you know, something that they picked up as in, in you know, their, their sort of hobby class. Um, and so they, in a way, they're trying to um, uh, express who they are as well as Indonesian migrants there in Australia. So you know, they, they want it to enliven the Indonesian dances. They think, oh, classical dances is a bit boring. If you add belly dancing, you know, the Australian audience would be more interested and all we have to do is just be colourful and, you know, do really exciting dances and that's, you know, they'll be entertained and, you know, they get a little bit of taste of Indonesia and that's all that um, they, they want it to show anyway. But they're always um, finding it, uh, difficult to have to contend with this image of themselves as 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 a bar girl as such. So when they dance and they dance a certain you know dance that may be a little bit too sensual and so forth, you know they 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 criticize. Oh yes, it must be because they had a bar girl pass. You know, um, you know their outfits a little bit too revealing, or you know their dance was a bit sensual. And um, women who are married shouldn't be showing off their body on stage anyway. So there's that kind of conservative sort of um, criticism of, of the women that they have to contend with. What is interesting is the majority are marriage migrants, so they're housewives, and um, they may not all have been trained in dance performances in Indonesia, such as classical dances. Um, you know, they may have had experiences doing sort of folk dances, um, in Indonesia, uh, like community events and so forth, but they have an interest in um, dancing not only as as a as a pastime to socialize with others like themselves, and it's a fun activity, you know, like as if you're going to a salsa class, you know, that sort of um, fitting into that sort of hobby of of dancing. But um, they wanted to participate and. Um, supposed to teach Australians about Indonesian culture through cultural performances because Australian multicultural festivals provides them with a space and an avenue to express this sort of identity and their hobby. Um, and they think that they are becoming cultural ambassadors. Now you're talking about um, Indonesian women who are actually amateur dancers and then take on dancing as a pastime but at the same time see themselves as promoting Indonesian culture. Now you yourself have danced with such a group at the Perth Royal Show and I was wondering if you could reflect on the meaning of that performance for Indonesian migrant women. 2007 Indonesia was the guest nation so they had like a whole section a whole building within the Royal Show um, specifically for Indonesia. Now, for the Indonesian women to be part of like that lineup um, was to represent Indonesia within this guest nation sort of building, really to try to promote Indonesia's tourism and bilateral relations was was uh, was quite a quite a big deal uh, for them. And um, 
and they they perform um, the day after all the professionals perform. So there was the first day was you know showing Indonesia um, professionally <laughs> within uh, in terms of having professional troop flown in and and so forth. And on the second day, interestingly, that was the day that the uh, Western Australian Premier came to visit because it was a work day. And um, they happened to take pictures with the Western Premier. And this was a big moment. It was like winning a trophy for them because then they have this picture, this sort of um, material um, proof that they are dancers. They are Indonesian cultural representative dancers. And they took a picture with the, with the Western Australian Premier. And they back then they would they would um, send the pictures by email and to their um, families back home in Indonesia and amongst their networks in Perth to show, look, you know, I'm an international artist. I'm an Indonesian artist there. You know, so they have a new kind of identity and role in Australia, not just as a housewife or a marriage migrant, but, you know, they are artists now. They're dancers, they're performers. They try to sort of um, fit in within that um, idea of uh, a patriotic Indonesian and Indonesian woman would be um, trying to uh, promote Indonesian culture and teach Australian um, audience about Indonesian culture through cultural dance. So they feel they can gain the sort of social recognition, maybe belonging or acceptance as a cultural performer. So through performing, Indonesian migrant women do not only see themselves apparently as um, cultural ambassadors, but they also feel that they can make a contribution to Indonesia today. Now, um, are there other ways in which this has um, manifested itself? I particularly would think of um, changes in the political arena. There was a group called uh, KPC Melati, or in Indonesian, Kluaga Pekawinan Campuran Melalui Tangan Ibu, or in English, um, mixed marriage group through mothers. And this group, they um, existed uh, through um, an online network in 23 different countries. And these are women, women who um, are um, are in in a in a lobby group uh, through their sort of identity as a mother. So they pushed. Um, the citizenship issue uh, with their lobby group in Jakarta. They had a lobby group in Jakarta, even though they are um, their members are in 23 different countries to gain that dual citizenship rights for children until the age of 18. Because before 2006, um, when they were successful in gaining dual citizenship rights for children, um, Indonesia's citizenship um, passes down from the father only. So as an Indonesian woman, you cannot pass down your citizenship to your child. And so the women argued that um, that they should be able to pass on Indonesian citizenship to their children. And it's important for them because the majority of them did not give up their Indonesian citizenship, even though they would have married non-Indonesians and live abroad by uh, having dual citizenship. So you can live overseas um, and work overseas, but also return to Indonesia or still have that investment in Indonesia in, in various ways. Now, this group, KPC Malati, um, has thus been very instrumental in triggering that change to the citizenship law, but um, it has also been criticised um, for being 
really more concerned with the specific needs or the uh, so supposed specific needs of Indonesian marriage migrants rather than um, more marginalized um, Indonesian uh, migrant communities, I think in particular of um, domestic workers. What are your thoughts on that? Um, to what extent um, is what Kapeche Malati sought also representative or um, in accordance with the needs of, of those other groups? The domestic migrant workers' children who wouldn't have the rights and some of them are even stateless because, you know, while they're domestic workers, they're not supposed to have children while they're working overseas. But these things happened. And sometimes the fathers will not acknowledge the children. So the children would not have the father's citizenship. So then they won't be a citizen of any country if the mother cannot pass on citizenship. Therefore, in a way that these diasporic communities asking for dual citizenship rights for all may end up helping uh, the situation um, for for migrants who who don't have the same um, capacity to lobby or or the means to lobby as as a diasporic community does. Kapeche Malati was um, a very much a community group. It appears that since then the Indonesian government has sought to engage more with its citizens abroad. For instance, there's now um, a, a global group called the Indonesia Diaspora Network. Um, what is this and why has the government sought to formalize its relationship with the Indonesian diaspora? What is interesting about the Indonesian diaspora is that it has been formalized and um, Indonesian Diaspora Network was created by um, an Indonesian ambassador to the United States uh, called H.E. Dino Patijalo. So, so he formalized it with a Congress in 2012 in Los Angeles in the U.S. And, um, and he named it the Indonesian Comunitas Diaspora Indonesia or Indonesian Diasporic Community. And it's become the Indonesian Diasporic Network. And they then um, form this network in 26 different countries outside of Indonesia. And it has 56 branches. So could you maybe give an example of how the Indonesian government has reached out to the Indonesian community abroad? This is just uh, something uh, recent. Um, Jokowi, he went to visit the Indonesian diasporic community in San Francisco in October last year, 2015. And his interest really is so that they can help him in terms of his new vision of Indonesia becoming a digital economy. So he visited those in San Francisco, particularly those working in the Silicon Valley and those working for Google, Facebook, Twitter. You know, His idea is that um, Indonesia should become like the, the Southeast Asian nation with um, uh, who's, who's, who, who's quite um, strong in the digital economy in terms of helping small to medium enterprises becoming online entrepreneurs with the help of social media and Google and so forth. So, so he went um, specifically to um, to a meeting uh, of the Indonesian diaspora there as, as they become sort of this intermediary between um, his, his, his uh, vision of Indonesia becoming uh, a leading nation in digital economy. 
Now, Monica, to wrap up, I'd like to ask you, you've been talking about um, the increased attention of the Indonesian government to the Indonesian communities abroad. You've spoken about um, how women um, make sense, so to speak, of, of being Indonesian in Australia. Um, normally, the bilateral relationship is very much conceived of as a political process, but you're talking more about um, people, ordinary citizens. So, um, what do you believe is the role of um, Indonesians overseas in enhancing bilateral relationships? Members of Australian Indonesian families, like the youth or, or the Indonesian women marriage migrants, or even, even the um, uh, mainly Anglo-Australian husbands, they're never really focused upon in sort of bilateral relations, the sort of uh, members of the diaspora, Indonesian women who participate in, in cultural activities and, you know, seeing herself as cultural ambassadors or even becoming part of uh, groups such as Australian Indonesia Association groups, Australian Indonesia Family Association groups. So groups that promote activities that enhance um, friendship at that people-to-people -people level. The government is interested in investing in having this sort of relationship with the Indonesian community because it's part of their um, soft power kind of diplomatic relations. So they think the Indonesian diasporic community can be a bridge between themselves and the um, the country that they're doing bilateral relations. The the focus as well, the government focus is, is to, to look into how, even though the Indonesian diaspora might be living overseas, they could still be part of nation building. Thank you, Monica, for your fascinating insights about the Indonesian diaspora. Thank you, Ken. That was Dr. Monica Vinarnita of the University of Victoria in Canada on the Indonesian diaspora and female migrants in Australia. The next Talking Indonesia podcast, hosted by my colleague Dave McRae, will be available on the 7th of April. And a reminder, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast series at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher. Many thanks for listening. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast.